she's always been the type of person that just says things and she just speaks her mind. I guess that has a little bit to do with not having a formal education. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. Happy 300 to us. Wow. We bring up our triple century. With uh, the long-delayed, the long-awaited, hopefully, Serena episode. Hopefully? That's in doubt (laughs) at this point? I've been eagerly, well, in some ways, eagerly awaiting it and dreading it. Uh, it's it's taken quite a long time to get to this place, and I think it's because for a little while I was just not ready to say goodbye. For me, it was more just trying to find the right tone, the right structure, how we were going to approach this. And, uh, well, this is what we landed on. <laughs> and I don't want to create too much preamble or intro, but we've been following Serena Williams since she was a little kid, both of us. I've been a Serena fan, you've been a Venus fan, but we both have so much adoration for the other mm-hmm. as well. A Serena episode is just as much a Venus episode. Do you remember the first Serena match you watched? I went back and watched the highlights of the very first Serena match I watched today. Really? I think it it must have been in 99, but I, I don't know. Like, I don't have those memories that you do about particular games or matches. I won't reveal which one that is just oh, yet. It'll oh. come up organically <laughs> at some point in the episode. Okay. We didn't want to do a bio, a chronology, because most of you know a lot about Serena. But the way it worked is it did kind of coalesce in in chronological order. We tried to identify some eras in her career and then work in some of the major themes And at the end, we'll do some more broader thematic discussions about her career and the way she was covered and discussed, etc. This podcast started in 2015. And so, so much of, say, the second half of her career, I guess, has been covered extensively on this show already. So it may feel like perhaps some of the, the narrative stuff on this episode is more first half heavy of her career Mm -hmm. but we'll we'll try and give as complete a picture as we can do you have as good a resume as serena williams Uh, well the thing is nobody does (laughs) let's talk about it well that's the first thing Mm -hmm. on the agenda here the first heading is resume 23 major singles titles across nearly 18 years 14 major doubles titles never lost in a final all one with her sister Venus. Two major mixed doubles titles. You can jump in at any point. Well, she's also made the final of all four mixed Grand Slams. Not mm-hmm. just that she's won two, but between 1998 and 1999, she made the final of every slam at least once. Did I say that right? Yes. Okay. Olympic golds. How many? Four. One in singles, three in doubles. Two patented, copyrighted. Serena slams. Four majors in a row across a non-calendar year. She did that in doubles as well. I sure did. She's got the career Grand Slam 
three times over in singles and twice in doubles. And the career Golden Slam in both. 319 weeks at number one. You just mentioned the Serena Venus Slam in doubles. They won four straight major titles across 2009 and 2010. The Verena Slam, if you will. We won't feature heavily or very much on their doubles career on this episode, but something that struck me from doing the prep for this episode was just how little regard most in tennis had for their actual doubles expertise. Yes. And that it was simply the insurmountable nature of putting these two powerhouses together on a tennis court that just blew everybody away. Nobody stood a chance. (laughs) Right. It was they were too athletic, too powerful. Who could beat them? They don't have to have a single tactic, a single strategic cell in their brain. And that was wrong. I mean, they didn't always work perfectly and like a traditional doubles team. But, you know, to say that these two aren't some of the greatest doubles players in history, the numbers just don't lie. And then the thing on Serena's resume that everybody will talk about, and rightfully so, is her serve. Any great sporting silhouette logo must necessarily start or include, at the very least, Serena Williams' serve. Everybody who matters, essentially, has called it the greatest serve in women's tennis in history. Uh, Her chief rivals for the crown have even said it's the best. It's versatile. It's unreadable. She can place it where she needs it to go. And it's powerful. And it's repeatable. The motion is repeatable. It doesn't have a hitch. She excelled across several generations. When she came on the scene in 1997, Monica Seles, Steffi Graf, Arantxa Sanchez-Vicario, they were on tour. There was Mary Pierce. There was Martina Hingis. Then we saw the Belgians come to the fore. We saw Jennifer Capriati's resurgence. The Russians started coming. Azarenka. It is a testament to the not just the longevity, but the high level that she played at for so long that she has a winning record against everybody. Yeah. Do you want to do you want to read through the players who she has winning records over? Martina Hingis, Lindsay Davenport, Yana Novotna, Conchita Martinez, Jennifer Capriati, Sister Venus, Kim Kleisters, Justine Enna, Moresmo, Sharapova, Yankovic, Azarenka, Lee, Kuznetsova, Ivanovic, Wozniacki, Kvitova, Kerber, Halep. And I just, I picked the big ones, right? <laughs> she has an even record against Groff, uh, you know, a real kind of passing the torch moment at Indian Wells in 1999. She's played Arantxa. She's played folks who who excelled in the 80s and 90s into players who are currently at the top of the game. The very first Serena era. Where does that begin? <laughs> the very, It begins in 1981 <laughs> all the way through 1999. I know some Serena fans have uh, very fixed eras in how they, they categorize Serena's career. I'm not saying this is the right way to break it down. This is just what made sense for us. Another disclaimer, this episode is not a definitive Serena episode. These are things that stuck out to us. We could probably do three other Serena episodes. Mm-hmm. And your episode may trump ours easily. <laughs> right. But this is Serena for us. Yes. At this moment. 
for the early years, you've heard so many of the stories. You've seen King Richard. You've seen the documentaries. The the lore about Compton is so well documented. But the lore of those days still has no equal in tennis. To me, there is no story that rivals this story. Uh, as far as sheer, I mean, it sounds like mythology, but it's real. But what's different about this story and what sticks out to me is that this was a rags-to-riches poverty porn story, as the media would like to categorize it. Mm-hmm. Authored and carried out and orchestrated by Black people. There was no white savior person in this story. Right. Richard Williams was cast as the hero, the anti-hero, but he was the agent, right? Like he had agency in how the story was written. In many ways, he wrote the story. In this story, the role that white people played was to tell these black people what they were doing wrong. And at every turn, the Williamses said, no, this is how we are going to do it. This is what works for us. We don't care about how you all do it. And we're going to go our own way and we're going to create history. We are going to dominate tennis. We're going to change tennis. Serena Williams is going to become not just the greatest women's tennis player of all time, but a cultural monolith. And that's a direct result of how they were raised in life and in tennis by their parents. I want to take just a few stories that I found. I, You know, I still learn stuff after all these years going through some old articles. The story about the birth of the open stance backhand. And it's not the first one, but it is a rather famous one, Venus and Serena's. Oracine had been an athlete growing up. She and Richard were learning the game of tennis when their kids were little, and actually even before Venus was born. And Oracine said she learned tennis in about a year. She became pretty good. She was athletic. And when she was pregnant for Venus, she couldn't hit a traditional closed stance backhand. And voila, the famous Williams backhand was birthed. And the thing I love about these stories is like, do we know if they're 100% true? No. Do we care? Also no. I mean, I don't. (laughs) We know that Richard Williams is a fabulist. He's a storyteller. Sometimes you wonder if what he's saying is actually grounded in reality. To me, that's so irrelevant. Like, it's it's just part of the myth-making. One of the features of Serena's first era, for me, was confidence-building. And one of the great examples of that was that famous interview that Venus did. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when Richard interrupted and said, hold on, you're not going to question what she just said. You asked her, she answered, you're not going to sit there and undermine this child's confidence. Asking a child to, to justify, well, why are you so confident? Why do you think you will be the best? And she had that groundwork, but also had the footsteps that her sister walked ahead of her to follow in. Yeah. And the combination of that confidence with seeing what can be done and knowing and believing within yourself that you're going to do it better and you just can't wait to get your chance, that is not just a hallmark of her career, but you can see it from the very start. You often hear the quote from Richard that Serena is meaner. When they were little, he prophesied that Serena would be better because she had a meaner attitude. She was more competitive on court. 
And this is echoed from a lot of writers, a lot of white writers who then started to turn that into like an animalistic persona. But where I want to start and where we always want to emphasize is that Oracine had such a huge part to play in the girls' development. Like it wasn't just Richard, right? It was both of them. Oracine was usually on the court, uh, on the other court, playing with one of the girls. Then they would switch. And Oracine's court was known as the tougher one. There were no jokes. It was it was not playtime like it was with Dad. I was really interested in uh, one of the few times that Oracine has talked about her faith back in the 90s. And she converted to uh, become a Jehovah's Witness in 1984. And Richard never did. The girls grew up as Jehovah's Witnesses. And Oracine spoke about this bond, this closeness between the girls and the family. And in a way, Richard was outside of that. She said back then that the women of her family are, quote, a perfect bond of union. It was so beautiful to me. And it made me think about how insular in a lot of ways the the Williams women are, that they've used this faith and this protection that comes with that, that bond of union in a really strategic way, right? They, for the most part of the career, until they got older in their 30s, they're super private, and, and used religion and the sisterhood in their family as a, as a real protection against, against the world, against criticism, against racism. Um, and I think you'll see it time and again through the episode. As a protection against all the criticism of how they began their tennis careers as well. You mentioned Insular. One of the knocks on them was that they kept to themselves in the locker room that they thought they were better than everybody else, that they were standoffish. But they had that sisterhood. Whereas, as we know, a lot of young pros do not have that nucleus to surround them and protect them as they're starting their tennis careers. These women became very famous at a very young age. And then they became subject to criticism like any public figure is. And a lot of that protectiveness and silence that they used with the media was characterized as being rude, standoffish, aggressive. And you'll see that time and again. When you're coming up in tennis as young prodigies, when you have a story like the Williams sisters did, there's a way, there's a formula, there's a a blueprint for the things that you should do. And it's documented in King Richard that by rebuking the establishment and going his own way, that also isolated the two young girls as they came up. Right. And for me, that's where the confidence, I spoke about the confidence in this era, how it's such a formative and almost innate feature of who they are, that it became all the more crucial and important for them to navigate the tennis world. You're supposed to play a full junior season. You're supposed to play junior slams. There, As you said, there's a blueprint for this. Very famously, the Williams family decided to pull the girls from the junior tour at a certain point. And there were years where they didn't play competitively because they were being set up to play and beat the older women on the senior tour. It was like, don't bother with these juniors. You're trying to beat Steffi Graf. Venus debuted in 1994 at Bank of the West. It was a big splash. It's documented in the movie. The following year, Serena turns 14. She wants to debut at Bank of the West as well. And she was denied because the WTA recently changed their age eligibility rules. She sued. Uh, She filed an antitrust lawsuit against the WTA to try to get into Bank of the West. And her parents actually advised her to back down. 
the uh, the age eligibility rules. Uh, we've talked about this quite a bit on the show, and at the time, they were being changed to allow a 14-year-old only to play four futures events and four small-scale main tour events. So at that time, Bank of the West was not considered a small-scale event. Remember, this is very shortly after. This is during a really difficult period for Jennifer Capriotti. We saw Andrea Yeager burn out. We saw Tracy Austin have a catastrophic injury and end her promising career. People were thinking about the welfare of teen prodigies at the time. Serena was not happy. She wanted to make that big splash, just like Venus did the year before. Instead, she made a much more humble debut. Her first tournament was the Tier 3 Bell Challenge in Quebec City, Canada, because she was actually able to get a wild card into qualifying. And it was this comedy of errors getting there, right? She and Richard had to board a flight in Philadelphia. They missed it. Her rackets were lost. And she finally gets to Quebec City with no time to practice. It was just time to go to bed. And the first match of this legendary WT career is a qualifying loss on a side court in Vanier, Quebec, to the world number 149, Annie Miller. And Serena lost 6-1-6-1. She held one time, then she broke one time. And I tell this story because it's so interesting to compare it to the huge splash that Venus made the previous year against Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. Serena is the one who craved the spotlight. Right? Venus didn't. And this is how their careers started. Richard is quoted at the time as saying, You can't really say no to these kids these days. Not the way parents did in my day. And to be honest, if I did, I'm afraid I'd lose them. Serena didn't play on the WTA Tour again for another, what, 18 months? Mm -hmm. She lost in qualifying in Indian Wells in 97 and then played only five events the rest of the year. But in the last event of that year, (laughs) this is just absurd. As a, what, 15-year-old at that time in 1997? Should have been fifteen. her 15 into 16-year season. In that final event, she makes the semifinals, beating Lehotseva, Mary Pierce, and Monica Seles. <laughs> if you look through Sarita's match record in those days, you know, they were already quite famous, but Serena was a young kid didn't play that much, and would come out of nowhere to beat the very best players in the game. Like, a lot. Frequently. Because conventional wisdom says that to have these big wins against big-time talent, you need to see the trail of breadcrumbs. You know, you need to see the work that went into it to say, well, this makes sense. But here she is just popping up sporadically and doing these big things. She pops up again in 1998 as a (laughs) 16-year-old, at the French Open. And in the third round, she plays number four seed, Arantxa Sanchez-Vicario, and goes up 6-4, 5-2, serves for the match at 5-3, and ends up losing in three sets. This is the match I told you I went and watched the highlights of today. Mm. It's the first time I saw Serena, and I am so thankful to her for losing that match. Because I was a huge Arantxa fan at that time. And this was her swan song. Her last hurrah on the WTA Tour, as it turned out. Mm -hmm. She won that major, right? She won it. And because of this match, I feel she won that title. She would go on to beat Lindsay Davenport and Monica Seles in the final. 98 was... It was up and down for Serena. The expectations were massive. Venus was growing into her game sooner 
which was to be expected. Venus was the one. She was the, supposed to be the star. She made the 1997 U.S. Open final, losing to Martina Hingis. Venus did. Mm-hmm. And so Serena would pop up here and there. She reached the semifinal in Sydney, where she beat Lindsay Davenport. Uh, 1998 also saw the very first two Venus-Serena matches. Both of them were won by Venus. They played in the second round of the Australian Open and the quarterfinals of Rome, both in straight sets. That was Serena's very first Grand Slam main draw appearance. And there, there's Sister Venus in round two. <laughs> Venus, over the next few years, starts their rivalry up 5-1. She had Serena's number at the beginning. And there's really no way to tell the story of Serena Williams without Venus. They will both tell you the same thing, vice versa. Mm-hmm. There is One doesn't exist without the other. And one isn't as good as they were without the other. Well, I guess you could argue that Venus could have been greater. <laughs> <laughs> she could have won more. She could have won more, yes. But would she have Caveat. been a greater player? Yes. Venus was the blueprint as well as the shelter for Serena. She allowed her the space to dream big and also have the luxury of the spotlight not being on her at the start of her career. And that was something that Venus was happy to do. Mm-hmm. But it's it's interesting. Venus, as the elder of the two, didn't seem to crave the spotlight and, and still doesn't. Serena is the more natural star. Like she she really wanted it. But Venus had to go through a lot and sort of got to protect her little sister from that. You know, them entering into this white tennis world was shocking. And they met with a lot of bullshit. And Venus was the first target. In the early days, it was the beads. You know, the beads were the target. There was always this surveillance of what the Williams sisters were doing. And early on, it was critique of their hair. And you could easily veil it in, well, it's just because the beads are distracting, they often fall out. So it's not it's not racial, right? It has nothing to do with race. It's just, it's a hindrance. I don't know what you want me to say. The rules are the rules. <laughs> right. Isn't that what uh, Lindsay said? Lindsay said the rules are the rules. That's the rule. Uh, but this... It just can't happen. Right. But this talk about black hairstyles dominated so much of tennis media during a few slams. Venus was the one who mostly had to deal with it. Serena, she was not fully protected from that stuff, but she had the benefit of her big sister having this instinct to protect her. She was not the one that had to face the media and field questions. Who was it from? Pam Shriver, I think, sat down with with Venus and Mm. asked her about it afterward. Yeah. So we'll be talking about Venus throughout this episode, but uh, I found this quote from 2012 when Serena matched venus's five wimbledon titles she said quote i've always wanted everything venus has had like that is such a little sister thing it informs their relationship in public and private are we still seeing that today with her tiktoks stealing (laughs) venus's stuff (laughs) yes the 1999 us open wasn't supposed to happen like that right serena was not supposed to be the first major singles titleist in the williams family but her year really couldn't be argued with. She won her first title in France, and then her real coming out moment was Indian Wells, where she beat Steffi Graf. Mm -hmm. And she says in that year, quote, I'm tired of losing to people I should beat. Whatever my potential is, 
I want to reach it now. Mind you, Serena has not even played two full seasons on the WTA Tour, but yet she's tired of losing to people she shouldn't be losing to. Right. She's talked about it years later that that loss to Arantxa stuck with her still to this day, that she learned a lot from it. And I think that was a big part of that statement, if I were to editorialize mm-hmm. here. She because felt she should have won. She felt she should have beaten Arantxa Sanchez Vicario. And it's amazing that it took so few matches for Serena to, to figure it out. To, to figure out how to beat people who were, by ranking and by achievements, better than her. I think it's fair. You know, let's first plug uh, our 1999 episode. It's called Party Like It's 1999. Uh, we, we covered this U.S. Open in depth. Uh, but I think it's fair to call this one of one of the most exciting slam runs in recent memory. And I don't know if 99 is recent memory for you all. But I consider it, you know, the modern age. It's certainly not recent memory for me. <laughs> recent recent history, let's say. There were a bunch of three-set matches. She beat Kim Kleisters, Conchita Martinez, Celis, Davenport, Hingis. Such a range of styles, a range of eras. Kim wasn't at her greatest. She was super young. Conchita Martinez was getting toward the end of her career. And Lizzie Davenport, let's be real. In 98 and 99 was the player to beat outside of Hingis. They were fighting fiercely for the top spot. Okay, yes. Yana was right there. She retired in 1999, fine, but Yana won Wimbledon in 1998? Yes, but okay. And she made the semis of the U.S. Open that year and the quarters of the French Open pushing, I think, Monica to three sets. Like, she was the square number three. Okay, okay? I'm not discounting Yana here, but Serena didn't beat her at the U.S. Open. That's kind of what it feels like. Serena started 99 as number 22 in the world. She finishes with number four. But listen to this. She has two separate 16-match win streaks. She wins her first and second titles back-to-back, five titles total. And she has match wins over basically every other major player in her era, just in that year. And she didn't even play in June and July. Mind you, Venus has won six titles. 99 changes everything, but not really, right? Not quite yet, because Venus goes on to have dominant seasons in 2001. Right. Venus said, well, hold up. (laughs) Like, because she was not happy. It's my time. She wins the U.S. (laughs) Open and Wimbledon in both 2000 and 2001, wins Olympic gold in singles and doubles in Sydney, gets to number one before Serena does, and that sets the tone for this next era which is Domination Part 1. Yeah. At this point, it still kind of felt that maybe Venus will have the better career. You know, after that historic summer that she had in 2000, winning everything with the 33-match win streak, 30-something match win streak. And this is where Richard's prophecy starts to come to the (laughs) fore, where he says, you know, Venus is good, but Serena. Right. We are going to skip ahead a few years. I told you this wasn't comprehensive. So the second era is Domination Part 1. This is 2002 to 2003. This is the year of the Serena Slam, the number one ranking, the Venus and Serena rivalry takes off, and Serena flips it on its head. And this is truly the year that changes everything. This is the year that differentiates the sisters forever. It's like nobody will, well, (laughs) you'd think nobody would confuse them again, but they do. But this is really the era where Serena asserts her dominance. It starts at the French Open in 2002, 
and it ends at the 2003 Australian Open. At that 2003 Australian Open, Serena is down 1-5 in the third set to Kim Clijsters. And having come back to win that match, she's, she's quoted as saying, I knew that if I held, broke, held, and then broke again, it would be 5-5. Five, five. Ma'am. Yeah, that's <laughs> technically correct. But who thinks this way? I guess, I, I guess players at this level do think that way. When you're down 1-5, it's like, oh, there's definitely a way back. I got this. And Serena throughout her career has so many comebacks like this. But this Australian Open gave us a classic, right? The Serena-Venus matches were harshly criticized at the time for being boring, awkward, weird. And of course, you can imagine why they were awkward. The girls were incredibly close. They warmed up together. They knew each other's games. It's awkward to try to beat your sister. But into 2002, into 03, it seemed like Serena stopped finding it awkward. She wanted to beat Venus. On court, Venus was just another opponent. And Australia gave us a classic. It also is the starting point, the genesis of that feeling we all had in the second half of Serena's career, whereby no matter the deficit, you still believed that Serena would come back to win. Like, this is the start of that. Right. There's so much to say about the Serena Slam. There's the incredible fit, the Cameroon kit at the O2 French Open. It's almost like she was announcing this new age, Serena-ness. The Puma era needs to be enshrined <laughs> in the Tennis Hall of Fame. Right. But this is the year when Venus and Serena, as a tandem, finally dominate women's tennis. They're one and two in the world. They play in every Grand Slam final against each other. And I mean, just a few months in, people were already tired, right? They were already complaining. This is too much, too much Williams. So what do you want? Well, we know what they wanted. They wanted, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> Billie Jean King is quoted at the time during the 2003 Fed Cup as saying, with Serena, it's as if she was made to be the queen. She's just having a ball. And then Wertheim that same year says, quote, as the critics were starting to warm to Serena, she was sanding her rough edges. When this I, is very instructive. When I read this, I'm thinking like, what are the rough edges you're talking about? And I think this shows how capricious the press and the tennis establishment will be. They were in 2003 and they will be throughout Serena's career that if those quote unquote rough edges come out, the acceptance is gone. The acceptance is conditional. If you play by the rules within our parameters, under the surveillance that we've set up for you to be accepted in tennis, then okay, we, we can deal with that up until the point where we decide that we're tired of it. Mm -hmm. Then we'll change the goalposts. We'll create new narratives. You are at the mercy of our whims and fancies. It's an... There's an interesting push and pull because there is an argument to say that Serena and Venus were celebrated in tennis. They got massive contracts. They made a ton of money. But there was always this yes, but if, like you said, if you step out of line, that celebration of you is contingent. It's conditional. They were on magazine covers, but were they beloved? Were they subject to this politics of surveillance? of containing them. Yes. If you step out of line, 
you won't be celebrated the way other people will be celebrated. The rules are different for you. Right. And I think the, I know we flew through this dominant era, but the the desert, as I call it, which happened between 2004 and 2006, an incredibly difficult period in Serena's career and life, that shows you that that acceptance and that, that love, it's not love. Like it, it was taken away when you stop, when you stop achieving. And when you refuse to grant any kind of grace to these sisters who lost their beloved sister in an act of gun violence. Like the, this so-called desert, as you say, coincides with the shooting death of Yatunde Price. And you almost never see it written about as one of the contributing factors. Maybe, perhaps, you don't even have to say that, well, this is why they're losing. Instead of saying, well, you know, they've suffered this great family loss, this great trauma in their life, instead we get these ruminations on outside interests, Mm -hmm. not taking it seriously, lazy. Serena didn't participate in the 2003 US Open, and shortly after the US Open, in September of that year, the eldest sister of the Price-Williams family, Yatondi, was killed in Compton. And what the sisters went through over the next few years made me think again about what Oracine said way back in the 90s. She said that the women of the family have a, quote, perfect bond of union. Uh, It made it really difficult emotionally even to read about that period. You can't imagine the devastation that that causes among a family that's so close, among any family. And so... I remember living through this and and hoping, you know, hoping Serena's career would get back on track, hoping that she would win majors. And so much of the coverage totally discounted and diminished the death of their older sister as if it wasn't a factor. And also, would something like this not cause you to rethink what's important to you in your life? Wouldn't this maybe put tennis into its proper place in your life? You know, that, that was something that was never really considered. Right. Yatundi was the caretaker of the sister. She was seen as kind of the mom of the siblings. And, uh, you know, they went back to work. Serena gets to the Wimbledon final in 04, loses in straight sets to Maria Sharapova. The tennis world is ready to <laughs> embrace Maria as the next big thing. Not just as the next big thing, but as the great white hope. Exactly. A lot of folks were tired of these two black women dominating. And they wanted to go back, you know, the way people talk about the 50s now. Mm-hmm. Or, the, you know, the Everett era. They wanted America's sweetheart, even if she was Russian. They wanted a skinny blonde girl who looked cute in the tennis whites. The good old days when watching women's tennis was just for the sexual pleasure of white men. <laughs> God. Um, we see this like, to gross, this day. Yeah. To this day, every time Chris Everett tweets something innocuous to say, "Well, oh, that was a lovely day today hiking," at least five of the responses is some fifty to sixty year old man saying, "Wow, you were on my bedroom wall in the eighties and the seventies. You were so hot." Right when you were sixteen. Yeah, uh, it's weird. And so, in this way, the Williams sisters forced the tennis viewing public. To change the way that tennis was viewed, right. consumed. Right. It was not just for your visual gratification. This was about the tennis. This was about their greatness. Mm-hmm. And Maria Sharapova was great. 
right? There's no doubting that what she did at Wimbledon, she beat Serena again at the WTA championships toward the end of that year. And Serena had a real problem on her hands. She wasn't at her best. And she wins a pretty surprising 2005 Australian Open. And it's it's just sort of a weird period in her career. But saving three match points against Maria Sharapova in that 2005 Australian semifinal, and then going on to win when nobody expected her to, that's a pretty important win in her career. It, it is, because there would have been a huge major drought had she not done that. She didn't win another title of any kind until January 2007, when she had another shock win at the Australian Open over Maria Sharapova. But that those years are marked by a real decline in Serena's game. Venus had an incredible resurgence in 05 with one of the greatest matches probably ever played on center court against Lindsay Davenport. But Sharapova was in the ascendancy. And it is hard to talk about Serena without talking about Maria. Heading into this so-called desert, and we're not talking about Indian Wells. <laughs> that later. <laughs> Heading into this desert period of their careers, there was all this Williams fatigue in the tennis discourse. Mm-hmm. People were tired of them winning everything. It's In a way, it's not a unique phenomenon. Right. When, when one athlete dominates for too long people tend to find it boring well, we found the federer era unless boring. it's roger yeah. i mean roger well, i found it boring was sure but <laughs> uh but the tennis establishment wanted roger domination forever right it's and very different there was no racial component right to that and so against that backdrop against the constant writing about being tired of their dominance she won that one slam final against serena and people were rejoicing, here she comes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, she arrived, right? Venus always had her number. Well, as it turned uh, out, Serena had her number too. Right. Because Serena never lost yeah. to her again. It was looking a little shaky for a while. But then Serena reeled off, what, 18 straight wins throughout a few decades? But the Sharapova phenomenon is pretty instructive in how we view female athletes, uh, how we view black women as objects of desire. I mean, Sharapova, like all women in the public eye, was objectified. She benefited from being blonde and thin and tall. And despite not being the player that Serena was, was the richest woman in all of sports for years, for many years. And we'll get to it later on, but Sharapova in that moment, as a literal 16-year-old, it's instructive of how gross men are, one, Mm -hmm. and also instructive of how black women, and especially black women athletes, are not seen as feminine, are not seen as attractive. Well, and it's, you know, this interplay of their bodies always already being sexualized, but not being considered worthy of sexual desire, right? Their bodies are seen as outside the norm and they're talked about in a really grotesque way, but Maria was the one that people wanted to watch, right? She was like the real woman. Can we talk about that moment on Chanda and Zena's pandemic show? <laughs> yeah. Uh, are we going, I mean, are we going there with the Serena Maria? It's part of the story. Because it was a true beef, right? It's part of the story. Uh, the Met Gala one year ago, 
one year ago today, I guess, right? It's not two years what? ago. Oh, well, anyway, a recent, recent Met Gala. This is actual recent history. <laughs> right. Serena and Maria had this reunion. They took pictures in the bathroom. Serena said, oh, I miss this girl. And it was like, wow, they're old friends. I love it. Like, I, I legitimately love it. But they did not like each other. Like, let's not cover over that. There was the Blackheart incident. They said some very nasty things about each other in the press. Neither was innocent. And then Serena's on the show with Chanda and Zena talking about how, you know, and then some people take drugs and then don't get banned long enough. (laughs) Shocked the hosts. But this is, you know, Serena, younger sister, she's alive. Why are these things come out of her mouth? And it was so unprovoked, which is why it was so funny. Now, Chris Everett has written many letters in her day. Some of them put to greater use than others. This one, written in May 2006, as a, what is kind of like a letter to the editor. Yeah, an open letter. In the tennis magazine, back when it was a physical publication. And at this time, mind you, Chris Everett was the publisher, the literal publisher of this magazine. Mm -hmm. She writes this open letter to Serena Williams. And I want to bring it up here, and I'm going to read it in full, because... I think it is so important to understand what was being said about these two women at the time, especially after what they'd gone through with the killing of their older sister. So the dramatic reading is back. Is that what you're saying? It's not going to be dramatic. It's just going to be read. Okay. Dear Serena, I've been thinking about your career and something is troubling me. I appreciate that becoming a well-rounded person is important to you, as you've made that desire very clear. Still, a question lingers. Do you ever consider your place in history? Is it something that you care about? In the short term, you may be happy with the various things going on in your life, but I wonder whether 20 years from now, you might reflect on your career and regret not putting 100% of yourself into tennis. Because whether you want to admit it or not, these distractions are tarnishing your legacy. Just a couple years ago, when you were fully committed to the game, you showed the athleticism, shot-making, and competitive desire to become the greatest player ever. Many besides myself share the same sentiment. You won five of the six Grand Slams you entered over the 2002 and 2003 seasons and looked utterly dominant in the process. Then you got sidetracked by injuries, pet projects, and indifference and have only won one major in the last seven you've played. I find those results hard to fathom. You're simply too good not to be winning two Grand Slam titles a year. You're still only 24, well within your prime. These are crucial years that you'll never get back. Why not dedicate yourself entirely for the next five years and see what you can achieve? Perhaps the reason I feel so strongly about this is because I wasn't blessed with the physical gifts you possess. I know that the lifespan of an athlete's greatness is brief and should be exploited. Once you get to number one in the world and start winning major titles, you should see how far you can take it. You've become very good at many things, but how many people would trade that to be great at just one thing? I don't see how acting and designing clothes can compare with the pride of being the best tennis player in the world. Your other accomplishments just can't measure up to what you can do with a racket in your hand. Ironically, I believe that if you fulfill your potential on the tennis court, all your other endeavors will become that much easier to pursue. 
you could become the most famous athlete in the world. Every magazine will want you on its cover, and any door you wish to walk through will be wide open. When I was playing, I always knew there would be time to get married, have children, do TV commentating, and even coach if I wanted. I assure you, there will be time for you to chase all your dreams once you're through with tennis. I offer this only as advice, not criticism, from someone with experience. If you're completely happy with the way your life is, then crumple up this letter and throw it away. I wish you nothing but luck and success in all your pursuits. Just remember that you have in front of you an opportunity of the rarest kind to become the greatest ever at something. I hope you make the most of it. Damn near everything that was cautioned against here, Serena achieved. <laughs> Every last one of them. And now, let's not allow... Chrissy to take credit based on this. That is not what I'm saying. No. I'm saying like Richard did with the start of their careers, Serena charted her own path and did things in her own time, her own way. And you notice (laughs) there was not one mention of Yatunde in this thing. Oh, no. That's like Serena was obviously going through a very rough patch in her career. Uh, As we said Folks always underestimated the impact that Yatundi's death had on the entire family. I d- it's, the letter is so condescending because this is someone who has that rare experience, who won 18 major singles titles. If you cared so much, why wouldn't you say this privately to Serena? Well, because she's the publisher of Tennis Magazine and needs to sell magazines. Right, right. She said... Then you got sidetracked with injuries, pet projects, and indifference. Yeah. Like, it's so judgmental. So you were sidetracked by injuries. I guess that's your fault. If you are seen having fun in public, that means you're not grieving, that you feel great. You could become the most famous athlete in the world. Did that. Did. Every magazine will want you on its cover, still to this day. And any door you wish to walk through will be wide open. Done. After this letter was written, she won 16 Grand Slam singles titles. 16. It's just yet another thing that Serena and Venus had to put up with. I think the letter speaks more broadly to something that Patricia Hill Collins called the new politics of containment. Hill Collins is a famous black feminist And she wrote about, you know, what happens when segregation ends, when Jim Crow ends. What does racism look like now? And so when Serena and Venus were coming up in the 90s and 2000s, we were very much in this Clinton era colorblind politics. Uh, We didn't talk about race. When I was growing up, I, I learned that racism was something that happened in the past and that it was mostly over with. And so in this silence, it was this era of there is only one race, the human race, that kind of politic. If you bleed and I bleed, it's the same color blood. <laughs> right. I have heard that from people who look like me so often. And so in this era of silence, if if you bring up your race and the impact it has in your life, you are playing the race card. Right. That is always the response. And we still see it playing the race card. And what that means is that you've recognized that racism plays a role in your life. And how dare you? How dare you mention it? But that that politics of colorblindness, I mean, makes that response, the race card response, almost involuntary. 
But this politics of containment, as Hill Collins calls it, is surveillance. It's a preoccupation with what black people are doing. It's preoccupation with black people having fun, experiencing joy. And I'm not saying that this is all contained in the letter, but throughout tennis, there was always an obsession with what Venus and Serena were doing outside of tennis and on the court. At the Australian Open, John Wertheim wrote that Nike wouldn't be happy after, quote, lavishing her with $40 million and the WTA was unhappy with her withdrawal. This is four months after Yutende's death? Right. Uh, Implying that Nike wasted their money on her. Somebody who just uh, won the Serena Slam, four majors in a row, a feat that hadn't been accomplished since 1988. There's also the backdrop of a lack of understanding, a resentment of the sparse schedule that the Williams sisters played. It wasn't until I think I read in 2009 that Serena played as many as 16 tournaments in one year. So this was something that that entire decade, through their dominance, was a source of resentment to. Like you yeah. are, it was almost like they were exploiting the WTA tour. That yeah. you are not contributing enough to the survival of the WTA tour, but you're reaping all the benefits, and you're not showing the requisite care for the survival of this tour. Mm-hmm. You're not showing the requisite gratitude for what you're able to achieve off the backs of all the people who fought through all manner of struggle to to give you this opportunity. Right. That they found like some loophole by just being really, really good (laughs) and being able to win tournaments. Of course, they brought money into WTA because they brought eyeballs. They brought excitement. Serena and Venus both got a lot better. I don't know if I would say better. They both got more diplomatic as far as like the political aspect of tennis as they got older. They talked so much about Billie Jean King's sacrifice and the founding of the WTA. But you could also make the argument, as Jamie Schultz did, that the tennis establishment, quote, appropriated the Williamses as symbols of diversity and progress, rather than recognizing them as racialized anomalies on the professional women's tennis circuit, as succeeding because of the sport's progress, rather than in spite of the lack of it. And we see this in, in entertainment, celebrating, you know, the first black woman to to win such and such Oscar or Emmy. Like, the... <laughs> This is not something to be celebrated, right? This is anomalous rather than indicative of real anti-racist work the institutions have done, right? They succeeded in spite of what you made them overcome. Because their story is one that you could not claim as having been a part of at all. Right. Outside of having actual tournaments to play. (laughs) (laughs) But getting back to the era at hand... In 2007, this is start of this is kind of the start of a new era. Serena comes into Australia out of shape. She had suffered a horrible loss in the lead up, ranked I think in the 80s, and wins the title. Not only does she win the title, she beats the number one player Maria Sharapova resoundingly. I mean, absolutely routes her in the final, which is one of my favorite Serena matches ever. I don't need a three-set, three-hour slugfest. I love watching Serena dominate. It's so gorgeous. It's also in this era where Serena kind of pops up with moments of supreme brilliance. And then it's coupled with stops and starts, struggles. And it, it really ferments this myth, this aura of 
a Serena that can just show up and do whatever, whenever, without any practice, without any prior matches. And it's a myth that was fed by something like the Chris Everett letter, you <laughs> right, know? Right. That Serena is somebody who's just not taking tennis seriously out here, being lackadaisical, lazy, outside interest, outside interest, blah, 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 blah. And when she decides, when she deigns to take tennis seriously for a fortnight, then something miraculous can happen and only she can do it. <laughs> but 07, 08, we're really getting there. We're really getting somewhere. She wins Australian Open in 07, has three straight quarterfinal losses to Justine Enna in slams. Mm-hmm. 08, 09, 10, Serena's the best, period. And it, it's sort of a strange period for me as a fan because... Except for Venus at Wimbledon in 2008. Yes. And no, I mean, Venus was really back at the top of the game in that period mm-hmm. as well. No doubt about that. Venus beats Serena in Wimbledon in 2008. Serena wins the U.S. Open in 2008 on my birthday, beating Yelena Yankovic. Boy, you would pay for that <laughs> happiness right? later on oh in your God. life. I suffered so much on my birthday at the U.S. Open, but, you know, she wins U.S., then wins the Australian Open following that. An absolute blowout against Dinara Safina. This is a great period in her career, but I think it's a forgotten period for many people. I think a lot of fans, not the diehards, but I think a lot of folks kind of forget that it happened because there are just so many eras to to talk about. Eras that aren't allowed to be sustained for various reasons. In this case, injury. Right. In 2010, Serena wins Wimbledon, her fourth Wimbledon title, and John Wertheim on the cover of Sports Illustrated says Serena is the GOAT. After her 13th major singles title, she's far away from the record, right? But he makes the argument that she's the GOAT. It's already sealed. And it turned out to be one of those things that if you say it, maybe it will come true. It may have been true at the time, regardless. Right. The Australian Open in that same year where she won the final against Justine Enna is one of my favorite matches ever from anyone. Serena was wrapped up like a mummy. Something was wrong with her thigh. Justine had come back and their rivalry was a very real thing at that time. They were very tightly matched. Justine, for a few years, was Serena's chief rival. And Justine was battling for supremacy in that era as well. When when Chris Everett wrote that letter in 2006, it was not clear. It was not clear that Serena was going to be the greatest player of that era. And a lot of people use those three consecutive quarterfinal slam losses to Justine as evidence that, well, hey, it can't be true. (laughs) Because here is Justine doing this. Yeah. When in fact, Serena was not at her best during that era. She was still on the comeback. Mm -hmm. And listen, Justine is an all-time great. She has seven slam singles titles. Very, very few people have that. But I think she met Serena at a good time for Justine. And a bad time for Serena. (laughs) Not to take away from her career at all. Well, their rivalry is also informed by the Justine Hand of God. Yeah. At the 2003 French Open, which would have been Serena's fifth slam title in a row. Yeah. And that always lingered and hovered over it. Mm. After Wimbledon in 2010, Serena suffers this mysterious injury. She hurts her foot. Uh, Supposedly, it was like a broken glass that messed up her foot pretty bad. Was it a Heineken bottle? So, what is it, a bottle of Pinot Grigio? Yeah, no. Didn't they say Heineken? 
I don't know why that sticks in my head. It does, yeah. But uh, Serena was like out of the public eye for a while with this injury. She suffered her first hematoma, something that will come up again when she gives birth to Olympia. And it was a, like a pretty serious time health-wise. And of course, it was again minimized by the sports press. <laughs> like nobody, because they didn't get the full 100 about this injury, they assumed it was made up. And again, you get this period where Serena's injured, she's away from the game, people are doubting her motivation. She reaches the 2011 U.S. Open final to play Sam Stozer. Stozer, who had recently made the French Open final. And there's an incident. There's uh, an incident where Serena yells come on when she hits what she thinks is a winner. It's called as a hindrance, and she has an outburst at Ava Ozdaraki. I know we didn't talk about the 09 U.S. Open outburst. We will. Or the 04 U.S. Open. Or the 18 U.S. Open. We will get there. Uh, but this this final seemed to be Serena's. As a fan, I was like, there's no way she can lose the Sam Stozer. But she does. But I do think it signals a return to competitiveness for her. And we get into 2012, which is what I've called unprecedented domination. It's the best stretch of Serena's career. It's a second golden era of her fashions on court. It is. That's for sure. Yep. I mean, there's so much going on. 2012, there's a myth about 2012 that I've always tried to dispel. The myth is that she was in the doldrums before... Patrick. Before Patrick and before winning Wimbledon. She was not. Yes, the French Open to Virginie Rosano was the first loss in a slam first round ever. Yeah. I remember delivering that news to you. Oh my God. I was, I was watching at home and you were at the time working at Starbucks. Yeah. And I said, well, better for me to deliver this news in person. <laughs> so I got my ass in the car, <laughs> drove, and you were like, hey, what would you like? <laughs> it's like, I've got some bad news. And you were probably like, oh my God, who's dead? Right. And then it's like, well, it's Serena. She, you're, she, there's no way she lost that match. No there's way. no way. I thought you were joking. I really thought you were joking. But the myth is that, like, she was at this ebb in her career. And she truly wasn't. Like, she had just won Charleston at Madrid leading up to Roland Garros. She's playing well on clay. But this was a devastating loss, obviously. She found Patrick in France, started working with him. And then she reels off, uh, you know, one of the great stretches of her career. She wins Wimbledon, Stanford, the Olympics at the All England Club, the US Open, and the WTA Finals. It was just like she flipped a switch. And what followed was, let me tell you, it was a very good time to be a Serena fan. And a lot of it dovetailed with the start of our podcast. It did, (laughs) yeah. It's probably why we started to do this podcast. Uh, We started the, the show in January of 2015. It was during what would become the second Serena Slam. The first episode was called A Formal Education, which was obviously a nod to the Martina Hingis shade. But this period, the thing about being a Serena fan, and I don't know if other people share this, is that it's never a surprise, right? Like, it's it's awesome when she does incredible stuff like this, but it's not that you expect it. It's like, yep, yep, I knew she could do that. Right, but not for nothing. It's also what makes... A lot of Serena fans insufferable. <laughs> Is that when she doesn't do things like that, it's... They don't treat her very well. Right, right. 
especially when she was active. Uh, 2012 is something that we couldn't have dreamed of. And then 2013 happened. Another French Open title. 2013 contained some of the best tennis of Serena's career, like bar none. Certainly the best clay tennis of her career, winning Charleston, Madrid, Rome, Roland Garros, starting a 34-match win streak, wearing some of the best kits of her career. That French Open kit is my favorite. It hangs on our wall. We've got a canvas... (laughs) done of that yep. serve in that outfit getting to beat uh, maria sharapova in the final winning her second roland garros title winning her third roland garros title two years later she and maria were sort of battling for clay supremacy there was this triumvirate of vika maria serena because at that time too she did she was not given her propers as a clay court tennis player Right. There right. were there was speculation if she would ever win again at the French Open at one point. And, I mean, 2013 just shut that down. She was truly unbelievable on clay in that season. But 10 slams in your 30s? Who, who expected this? Even the diehard fans who knew she could do it. I was hoping for another great run. I knew she was still a great athlete. But 10 slams? You just didn't play that well that late into your career it just wasn't done even even the players known for their longevity like martina navratilova this hasn't been done before it's never been done and a lot happened in that period i mean she got together with patrick as a coach possibly more (laughs) there was the the blackheart interview in rolling stone continued victories against maria sharapova some classic U.S. Open finals against Vika Azarenka, some of my favorite matches ever. After a not amazing 2014, she beats her friend Caroline in the final of the U.S. Open and kicks off what we we didn't know was going to become another Serena Slam and super close to the Grand Slam. And I would argue that 2015 is the year where Serena takes the final big leap into cultural monolith. Yes. She was never as famous as she was in her mid to late 30s. You may have been listening to this episode and thinking, well, wow, they just skipped right over Indian Wells like it didn't happen. Well, (laughs) we decided to cover it on the back end with her return to Indian Wells. Yeah. In the middle of this historic slam run, she was two in to the Serena Slam 2.0. She announced that she was ending her boycott of Indian Wells and going back in March 2015. This was a shocker. Serena and Venus had boycotted the tournament for years after what happened in 2001. What happened was that Venus pulled out of a semifinal against Serena shortly before the match. The sisters say they were telling the trainers and people behind the scenes for hours and hours that Venus wasn't going to play and they delayed the announcement. Obviously, it was met with a lot of uh, consternation by fans who'd bought a ticket. When Serena arrived at the final, she was booed. Richard and Venus, as they entered the stands, were booed. Richard said that they heard all manner of racial racial epithets, the N-word, abusive shit rained down upon them. And the way it's been covered in tennis is like, this is what they said happened. Mm-hmm. It's not like what happened. Um, but what happened was bad enough for Serena and Venus to boycott a really important tournament for 
uh, 13 years. And so what does that say about what happened? It was pretty impactful. You know, whatever happened was pretty impactful. These are two American women who grew up in Southern California, about two hours away from Palm Springs, where this happened. Serena was booed throughout the final against Kim Kleisters, a white Belgian woman. Serena won somehow and said on the way back home, she cried all the way back home. And it was, I mean, this is a devastating thing for a player to go through, right? And so what we saw over the course of the next 13, 14 years was a discourse around that 2001 event that moved from, well, this is what they say happened to, well, wouldn't it be great if Serena came back? Wouldn't it be a great healing moment? Won't it be a sign of her maturity? Her, her maturity. Her maturity. Hers. Uh, I have yet to hear an apology. They said, oh, the, you know, Indian Wells has a new owner. It's different. I remember a few years after Serena returned, uh, one of the people on the board of the Indian Wells Tennis Garden, Raymond Moore, said that women should be on their knees thanking men for the money they've provided to them. You remember that? Mm -hmm. So Indian Wells didn't change that much. Uh, but but it's, I, it became tennis paradise. Yes. So why wouldn't Serena want to experience yeah. the paradise? I'm, I am getting ahead of myself here. Uh, Serena wrote about it in her book. You can go read it. I recommend that you do because she has a firsthand account of what happened. She actually experienced it. Serena announced that she was returning in 2015. And I read this interview in 2012. In the summer of 2012, when she was just getting back to being dominant, and she, I mean, she really went there. She told the reporter, John Jeremiah Sullivan, quote, but I don't need to go back there. They don't like me. I don't need to be there. If you can boo a teenager, you can be white and 60 years old. You know what? I'm cool on you. And later she goes on to say, people like Martin Luther King Jr. boycotted things, and this is nothing on that level. Look at Muhammad Ali. He didn't even play. He went to jail because he didn't want to go to war. The least I can do is stand up for my people and not go there. They can penalize me to death. I'm never going back. And they did, right? They fined her for skipping the tournament. And it tells you a lot about where we are. I'm not saying we're necessarily in a better place, but when this happened, this was seen as, you know, another one of their indulgences. It wasn't treated like a political action, which is actually what it was, because Serena framed it quite clearly here, that this was a boycott motivated by racist actions so they find venus and serena for missing it she said in 2012 i'll never go back and in 2015 she goes back and of course a lot of people had questions and the way that she framed it was in in this partnership with the equal justice initiative which was about getting justice for black people especially who had been wrongly convicted and wrongly accused this acknowledgement that the U.S. legal injustice system had structural racist bias. But it was a, such a shift in Serena's public persona. But this is where Serena really becomes bigger than the game. Yeah. And that's often used as a pejorative when talking about athletes. Oh, you think you're bigger than the game. The game is what got you here. The game existed long before you. Without all the people who came before, you would not be here. But it's a matter of fact at this point that Serena is indeed a cultural icon. And 
exists in realms that everybody else in tennis, including her sister, could only dream of. And with that comes a whole host of ramifications, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into some of those later. What followed was, of course, the second Serena Slam, this incredible achievement that somehow, somehow, four majors in a row was tarnished by not getting the calendar year Grand Slam. And it was something that was so, so painful to see as a fan. And To Roberta Vinci. To Roberta Vinci. That it, and that's just how it happens, isn't it? Like Roberta Vinci, it, who we sat across from in Applebee's. <laughs> That's that same summer, a few weeks prior, I was like, "Oh, look at Roberta Vinci," not knowing mm-hmm. that she would upend tennis history. Yeah, and at that moment, I thought of Tanya Harding. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? We can't change history. It happened, and in the ensuing year, she lost a Slam final to Kerber. She lost a Slam final to Muguruza wins Wimbledon 2016. This is 22. This is Steffi Groff's record. She has equaled it. And finally, 2017 Australian Open, which is the feel-good slam of the past decade. Unless you're a Venus fan. <laughs> no, but... Even so, I suppose we just have know, to be satisfied with the crumbs of the twirl against <laughs> Coco Vandewey uh-huh. in the semifinals. But uh, <laughs> a Serena-Venus final that was very unlikely... A Rafa Roger final. It was it felt like the old guard. And what we didn't know at the time was that it was in many ways Serena's last hurrah. Well as a slam winning as a, but this champion. Is, this is Serena. Mm-hmm. She doesn't play to reach finals. Okay. We'll get to that. A few months after the twenty seventeen Australian Open, she reveals on Snapchat, of all things, <laughs> that she has a baby bump. She is pregnant, and not only is she pregnant, she was also pregnant during the Australian Open. Just a little bit. And Venus knew ahead of that final. Now, she should have kept that to herself. That's not fair. She should have kept that to herself. I, I always agree with you that that wasn't fair. <laughs> Venus was always out for the best interests of little sis. Right, but that's the disconnect between us as fans of the Williams <laughs> sisters and who they are, yeah, right? That, yeah, that's unrealistic. That is not how they live their lives. Like, they're sisters first and foremost. Right. We're just little plebes who have no <laughs> lives but to like <laughs> who have the privilege of watching these women do lather up ourselves into a boil oh, oh wow <laughs> <laughs> and get outraged over the most stupid things she has olympia she gets married to alexis ohanian serena comes back and this entire twilight period is in search of 24 this entirely made up goalpost shifted record when i started watching tennis it was always Chrissy and Martina, and then Steffi passed it, and then it was Steffi. They're graphics. But yes. somewhere, some some people decided that we needed to have something else to chase. We needed to have this new meaning added to these broadcasts for people to care. Instead of just watching greatness, we had to concoct this story for Serena to chase. And at 37, 38 years old onward, Kel Surprise. This was something that was insurmountable for her. That even Serena Williams couldn't achieve this. Even, I mean, as a fan, you think Serena Williams can do anything. 
she returned from maternity leave and reached four slam finals. Like four finals. That's a career for a lot of people. Including Wimbledon mere months after returning to the tour. Yeah. She came back in what? It was Fed Cup February of 2018. Mm -hmm. Fed Cup in Asheville, I want to say. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And a couple months later, there she is in (laughs) the Wimbledon final losing to Angelique Kerber. And you look back at it and you think, ugh. But then it's like, and the more distance I get from all these losses is, this this is crazy that she still did this. Honestly, honestly. In those two years, she made four slam finals. And there was this rabid push, not just from her, but her fans for her to achieve this. And she still got to those finals just unable to cross the finish line and so many of us as fans didn't didn't believe that margaret court's 24 was a record worth pursuing you know the op- the pre-open era was so different uh margaret court was a great like there's no denying that but the open era record is the record it's the record it's the professional era serena and venus steffi martina angus they were playing in a very very different WTA than the 70s. The game has changed. More people have opportunities. The athleticism is worlds apart. This is a greater achievement, period. We've spent much of the last five years of this show documenting and chronicling this quest and all the ups and downs of it, the traumas of it. And you can go back and listen to those episodes. Yeah, we said this was going to be like front loaded. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I want to add here that I hope that folks will look back at Serena's career and especially the Twilight era with fonder memories of what she was actually able to achieve rather than what she wasn't able to achieve. Because one of the legacies of Serena Williams, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but just to wrap up the actual playing career segment of this episode, is that because she became this cultural monolith, expectations of her almost outgrew expectations of herself, if that's even possible. And with that, we will transition into a more thematic discussion of Serena's career, specifically the things that she dealt with over her, can we even do the math? What? 26 year, 25, 26 year playing career and the way her career was talked about. Mm. So I think like it's good to remember that no matter how rich you are, famous you are, successful, as a black person in America and most places in the world, you will still be subject to structural anti-black racism. And we have talked about this kind of throughout the episode, but Serena and Venus were subject to misogynoir, which is a recent coinage by Moya Bailey about 13 years ago, which talks about the intersecting oppressions that are unique to black women. Racism and misogyny. Right. To being both black and a woman at the same time. Bell Hooks said that it is very difficult to find affirming images of black femaleness. So Serena and Venus throughout their careers were, you know, they were not the favorites on their home soil. 
Orisine has talked about the 2002 U.S. Open where she, where she watched the crowd, the home crowd, quote, cheer noisily for Moresmo over Venus, you know, booing out calls, shouting during, during Venus's serve toss. This is not what I witnessed at the U.S. Open last year when Serena played what we believe to be her final match at the U.S. Open. That entire tournament, that entire lead up to that tournament was boisterous, rapturous support Mm -hmm. in the stadium. That must have felt incredible and gratifying and uh, maybe a full circle moment. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this clearly, demonstrably, was not always the case for large periods of their career. Throughout the early part of her career, Serena was described as everything from a fireball to a pit bull, an animal, to a, a, quote, classically muscled natural athlete with a fierce net side manner. Quote, family members profess to being a little afraid of her, especially on the court where she is at her most unpredictable. Of course, Richard said Serena's meaner. Wertheim said Serena has a superior quotient of nasty. So there was always this element of intimidation, right? And so much of that was placed within the body. Serena's body was shocking to people. It was unfeminine. It was unfair, even. But you look at some of her pictures now in those Puma outfits from the early days, and that is a lithe woman. She's a, she just had some muscle definition. Right. Like, she was only 5'10". <laughs> at the most, right? She's not super tall. They saw a black woman with breasts and a butt. Curves, even. Curves, muscles in her arms, and they saw they saw something alien. So this Kornikova quote from back in the day, I'm going to let you read that. You're going to let me read yeah, it? Yeah, because I don't want to. Quote, I hate my muscles. I'm not Venus Williams. I'm not Serena Williams. I'm feminine. I don't want to look like they do. I'm not masculine like they are. This has been quoted multiple times in academic sources. I have not found the original attribution. So I'm just going to say that as a disclaimer. But what the fuck? And this happens when? Like? The the early, early 2000s. And then 15 years later, we get the New York Times article about how... Women tennis players view their bodies, again, with Serena Williams mm. being the the anti-goal. Yes. So it's a story that basically puts Serena as the, like, the athletic anti-ideal. Like, her body is the most successful. But then you have a list of quotes from white women saying, I don't want to be that. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying, this is not new. It's not. Evident. It's not new. Uh, Serena's body was a hot topic of discussion. Same with Venus's. It was seen as intimidating, masculine. Uh, Sometimes it was cast as superhuman, as fantastical, like she was a superhero, which was supposed to be a positive take on her body. But there was always a surveillance of her physical appearance. Well, there's a coded nature to it too, right? Whereby if you have all these physical gifts, then what you're achieving is like... Well, of course. Like, all these other players do not have these natural gifts that you are just blessed with. And so it's not your hard work. It's not your intellect. Certainly not your intellect. Right. Not your skill. It's, well, what can we do about it? It's the black quarterback phenomenon. 
It's the idea that black athletes weren't clever enough to be a quarterback, didn't have the tactical acumen, right? They were valued for their pure athletic ability. Serena's body and the way it was talked about is rooted in the history of black women being seen as unwomanly. And this goes all the way back to the early 1950s. This goes back to Althea Gibson being made to take a chromosome test to prove that she was a woman in order to play the U.S. National Championships. This this was a bombshell that I found in an academic article by Delia Douglas. Althea Gibson was seen as an anomaly, was seen as something anti-woman. And we were talking about this on an episode of this show recently about African women being made to take genetic tests, being made to suppress their natural hormones because they are seen as non-women. Even, even being cis women, they're not the correct category of a woman. And it's so frequently black women who are subjected to this. To that end, Chris Everett was quoted as saying, the Williams sisters' athletic ability and raw aggression make it hard for the women who aren't Amazons to compete with them. Like, what the hell? I mean, back then, and I guess still now, people were talking openly like that and not being afraid of any blowback. But also, you could then develop musculature, but you don't want to because you want to look like a woman without stretch marks. We saw in that New York Times story in 2015, Radvanska's coach said that we're trying to keep her small. She wants to be a woman. And of course, in opposition to that, the people who look like Serena and Venus are not, right? It's interesting, though, that Serena often leaned into this. I guess, I, you know, I can't see into her mind, but I wonder if she was subjected to this so frequently that was like, well, let me, let me take what I can from this because it's not going away. She said, this is in 1999, before the Indian Wells match against Steffi. She said, no, I'm not intimidated by Steffi. I've never been intimidated by anyone. And unless I'm across the net from someone who's 10 feet tall and green, I won't be. Shrek? (laughs) (laughs) On the other hand, because of my size and skills, I can intimidate anyone. Like, whoa. That is a 17-year-old girl talking about the goat, Steffi Graf. She's also quoted as saying, I'd prefer for people to regard me as unapproachable, which is kind of how I've lived my (laughs) entire adult life. (laughs) I've gotten that, as you know, so many times. Gotten that because it's true. You're not entitled to me. Not you, James, but, you know, like... Yeah, you're all about protecting your peace, your sanctum. Yeah, like, if we, you know, get along, we get along, it's great. But, like, anyway. (laughs) So we've talked about our career in chronological order. Not everything, of course. Uh, We're not trying to hit every single point. But we have some, some kind of major headings that we wanted to get through. Controversies. Uh, moments and press conferences. It's like, how can you not talk about this stuff with Serena? Some moments from her appearances on television. And then... The filmography. A final look at her legacy. Oh, and don't forget, there's one more segment about her outfits. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the controversies seem to uh, center around the U.S. Open. I always second-guess myself when I see this word now because... As Jamaicans, we say controversy. Yes. And so like, I always have to sound it out like three times in my head to decide which one I'm going to say. Say it how you would say it. I don't even... That's the thing. So many years mm. out now, I don't know how I... 
as to how to pronounce C-A-R-I-B-B-E-A-N. <laughs> no clue. I don't know what's the authentic way anymore. Yeah, yeah. It starts at the 2000, well, we talked about Indian Wells, but then also then the US Open. It's the site of so many of these controversies. Yeah. 2004. 2004, in a quarterfinal against Jennifer Capriati, a huge rival of hers at a time. At the time, uh, Serena has like the jean skirt, the famous jean skirt. Didn't like it. I didn't love it. Wow. It wasn't one of my favorites. Oh, rough. Pretty no. rough. It was and- no catsuit. <laughs> anyway, this match had so many glaring, obvious mistakes by the chair umpire, Mariana Elvis, that it, in a way, uh, legitimized Hawkeye as something that was going to be part of the game rather than just a gimmick on TV commentary. Because previously it was just, what, Matt Cam? That's what they called it? Uh, I can't remember. I mean, they used it informally for years on TV before it became part of tennis itself. But most, you know, most people agree that this match was, it was just... Hyenas. Called really poorly. It was horrendous. Uh, and the calls were going against Serena for some reason. So she has felt aggrieved about the U.S. Open for a while. So then in 09, she lets loose on... Shino. Shino, the, uh, the line umpire who was calling footfalls. I this didn't is, say I was going to kill you. Oh my, Are you serious? Oh my God, with just guys... I gotta, I gotta admit, with distance, that is funny. Oh, you can? <laughs> I didn't say I would kill you. Because, like, how did we get here? How did we get to that? Because allegedly, <laughs> it was, I'm gonna take this ball and shove it down your fucking throat. Right. We, which, we all saw and heard that, right? Which reasonable, reasonable people would expect that a fair percentage of people who suffered that may die. <laughs> I didn't say I would kill you. So Shino ran to the chair umpire and told them, I couldn't remember who it was. It was a snitch heard around the world. To- told them what Serena said. The tournament referee came out. She was docked a point. That was on match point. And yeah. she lost. Well, it so she was not defaulted. It just happened at a critical time. If I match. recall correctly, it was, what, 30 all, and then she was called for the second serve foot fault, which was then a double fault, which made it match point. And because it was a second incident in the match, she lost the point uh, and the match. This was against, Is that correct? I, some, I don't... Close enough. Quote me on the exact game score, but I think so. This was against Kim Kleisters, who was coming back from having her first child, who went on to win the 09 US Open. And Kim was a friend, right? They even hugged after the match and... It wasn't about her. And this was after Kim beat Venus in the quarterfinals. Ooh, with that very weird scoreline. Mm. Uh, then, 2011, we get the hindrance call in the second set versus Stozer in the final. Eva Azdaraki. I mean, this is a legendary read. Not gonna lie. If you see me walking in the hall, look don't, the other way. Don't look my way. <laughs> you are unattractive on the inside. Inside, with motions. I mean, it was not nice. This is, you know, a lot of this episode is praising Serena, but she was not always nice. She could be very mean when she was ready. No, and the the thing here is that everybody, every single person on this earth, has unattractiveness on the inside (laughs) that sometimes makes its way to the outside. Right. It just so happens that Serena's happen to be so public. 
and what's then done with those moments to then paint a broad brush as to who she is as a person yeah is what's a problem and the worst really like one of the worst days of being a tennis fan ever listen it was one of the worst days of our lives well Period. Point blank. What a, I mean, what a privilege, right, for that to be one of the worst yeah. days. But the 2018 U.S. Open final against Naomi Osaka, we're not going to talk about the details, but... It's, it's the thing that we've covered most on this show, probably, <laughs> and it's one of the things that we are most proud of, honestly, yeah. with how oh we covered. God. But that was rough. And the days after that were rough because people were mad. People were mad at us. They're mad at everybody. And it was like, emblematic then and now as to how we, quote-unquote, cover or talk about tennis. We have no desire to be first. No. Because the people who were first that day and the day after, man, a lot of those things were deleted. Right. And and no desire to be respectable. And this is a thing that I push us, back. Us, we have no desire to be respectable? Exactly. Respectable? No. What do you mean by respectable? Uh like respectability okay i just felt like that oh, could have been misinterpreted sure sure i i saw this in an academic article that argued that serena had entered this era of respectability in 2015 and i really like i really want to fight against that because that must have been predicated by the return to indian exactly. wells right so she returns to indian wells but like at every moment she's reminded that you are less than. This is you. Like, the worst version of you is you. That happened at the U.S. Open. And you are finally making good right. with us. It's like we find, you know, after these years of being successful and behaving, we got that out of you. The absolute worst side. We always knew you were that girl. And that's what it felt like after the 2018 U.S. Open. Serena never stopped being Serena. You know, maybe she started being nicer to her colleagues she started understanding her role in history but she never stopped being serena and the things that you celebrate serena for her achievements on court are because of the same drivers and catalysts that allow these bad moments to happen for mm -hmm. her as well you know so when that happened you know we saw that racist jim crow cartoon from australia with those exaggerated features and it it was 1997 all over again it was 99 it was 2001 it was 2009 it was 1865 all over again like you will always be reminded of your place it was caroline wozniacki's minstrel show impersonation of serena all over again it was the race card but we get to play it i want to again this may be the fifth the 10th time I've said this on this podcast, I want to give Zena Garrison her flowers because she was the only person I heard who spoke to this incident in a way that made sense to me. And I think she was right then. I think she's right now. And I think it's indicative of this ongoing decades-long problem with tennis commentariat that we do not have enough minority voices covering tennis. Why did we have scores upon scores of white people talking about Serena's body during her career? Mm. When this happened, immediately I understood it to be that Serena's integrity, 
her authenticity, her word was being questioned. That she was being accused of being a cheat. And as Zena said at that time, for Black people, and I understood it as a Caribbean person, that is one of the absolute worst things you could do. And I said then and I say now, maybe the biggest thing I will remember the rest of my life from something my father taught me. I always hear it. You are only as good as your word. And to this day, if I say something, I expect you to believe it. And if you come back at me and say and question it, it's un- it's incomprehensible to me. Like, mm. why would you not take what I said at face value? Because I said it. <laughs> do, do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. And if you continue down that path, we are done. Like, I'm not going through this game, this rigmarole with you. Like, I said it once, I meant it, that's the end of it. And I think Xena was uniquely placed to be able to pinpoint that. And so many people wouldn't even dream of identifying that as a huge, if not the biggest contributing factor to what happened that day. Yeah. I'm so, so glad that I saw that because I probably would have missed it. Like, that's an element that I that probably didn't occur to me as an observer. Venus and Serena both, though, when their sportsmanship and integrity and rule following is called into question, they react very badly. Because think right? about how strictly they've had to adhere to the rules to survive in this sport for decades. Yes. Period. They are more... <laughs> More inclined to follow rules than anybody else on this tour. Right. Any tour. This is not to say that Serena acted well, that she was her best self that day. She was not. Because she certainly could have handled it differently, but it gives you some insight into why she had such a vociferous reaction to that. Because she felt that her honesty was being called into question. And that was basically the worst thing that you could do. We have this thing in Jamaica where you say, like if I act out, or you act out, for example, say him head take him, <laughs> and that means that you have no control over your over your response, over your reaction in this moment because you are basically literally beside yourself. Yeah, yeah. Something has happened that has triggered you to such a degree that all bets are off. Yeah. Wow, I that figure of speech beside yourself like it just it made a lot of sense to me because it's like I'm watching myself. But I'm not there. I'm next to myself, Mm -hmm. watching myself say things and do things that I shouldn't say and do. And wow, am I going to (laughs) regret having done that. But I have no control over it in this moment. Yeah. So those incidents at the U.S. Open, I felt that. Yeah. Like, I've, you know, I've always been a Serena fan and I couldn't put into words why. But like in those incidents, I was like, what? Yeah. I feel, I feel you on that. Yeah, because you're a head tech you all the right, time. Right, All right. the time. And that doesn't mean I'm proud of it, <laughs> right? And this is interesting. Like, Serena talked about after 09, she, she felt a lot of shame about how she acted because the elders of her church, of the Jehovah's Witnesses Kingdom Hall, literally sat down with her and reprimanded her about how she acted on TV. All this is to say that you cannot talk about Serena Williams without the context of her being a black person, about her being a woman, about her being a black woman in the United States of America, specifically. And thus, sport, when Serena Williams is involved, is not just sport. You cannot take the politics out of Serena Williams and tennis. 
Right. And you cannot isolate or use isolated incidents to then pinpoint and say, well, this is who you've always been. You are that person. Because everything that that has happened to her in her life up until that moment you want to isolate informs the way she's reacting and the way we should view that incident as well. Serena Williams and any black woman is not allowed to be Cal Ripken, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio. <laughs> They're not allowed to be that. They're not allowed to be John McEnroe even. No. Or Patrick McEnroe, for that matter. Who wants to be Patrick McEnroe? Well, I guess a, it does come with its perks. It's garnered a lot of, yeah, mm. a lot of benefits. Anyway, let's <laughs> let's move on from the heavy stuff and just shine a light on some of these amazing moments in press conferences. The first one is actually a real mean girl moment that I don't like at all. We liked it at one point and until we were corrected. I, I have surely laughed at it, but I... I don't like it. I presented it as like, oh my God, remember this one time to somebody? And I was met with pushback. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? You're right. You're right. We are capable of being corrected. Yeah. That is not the serve I thought it was. Yeah. And so what was it? She won Roman Madrid. (laughs) (laughs) It's just such a visually appealing piece of entertainment as well. You know, read. I mean, she's wearing. Uh, Are you looking at my titles? Can I in- objectify Serena for a moment? Like, she's wearing a shirt, and on her breast it says, Are you looking at my titles? Which is a pun. Mm-hmm. And as soon she cannot barely get through the sentence without cracking up. And you know, you know I love somebody who laughs at their own jokes. <laughs> like, that is my kryptonite. It's increasingly so. <laughs> You get out of work meetings and you're like, oh, you know, I really like this person. Like, they were laughing at their own jokes. You know, you know, I love that. (laughs) I just find it very charming. I don't know why. Um, But this was really mean because it was about Safina, who seemed to be a very nice person. And who suffered great tennis trauma in her life. Right. And the question was like, why aren't you number one? You know, how do you feel about not being number one? Somebody who also suffered in their big sibling's shadow Mm -hmm. in tennis, mind you. So that was a pretty legendary moment, but one that I don't find joy in anymore. Mm. A more recent one, uh, she was asked retroactively, you know, three or four years after the 2015 French Open about the therapeutic use exemptions she took when she was sick, like visibly sick on court. This would have been for the 2015 French Open. Against, I guess, Tamea Baczynski and then Lucy uh, Safashova in the final. And she said, are you... Are you asking about my drugs? Oh, say it. I want I want them to hear you ask me about my drugs. No, 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 no. Speak up. <laughs> I want to hear you ask me about my drugs. That was a boss move because that's Serena Williams. I would have just shrunk into the carpet. However, I would have never started that line of questioning. That's just me. To be honest with you, I, I don't want to be here. You're not making it super enjoyable. <laughs> she did laugh after saying that. <laughs> Uh, and you know who she was talking to? She's talking to Ubaldo. Well, uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> About Mariana Alves, after that infamous 04 US Open match, she said, quote, I guess she went temporarily insane. Uh, why don't we ask the audience? YouTube is right there. Look at the receipts. <laughs> oh. uh, you know, I guess it has a little bit to do with not having a formal education. The genesis of the body serve. Girl, like... 
that quote. So we've used that quote as our intro and will today. Nobody was doing it like Serena and Martina in 1998, 1999. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody was doing it. And Venus and Lindsay. But like the whole quadrant. Nobody was doing it. Nobody. And that quote, it got worse. But then also retroactively, I know you have more dialogue Mm. to relate to the audience. (laughs) But retroactively, people were doing all this sleuthing and saying that there were hidden messages because Serena was like rubbing her nose while she was throwing shade. And we know that Martina was suspended for cocaine in 2006 or something like that. (laughs) It's either the most wild conspiracy or like the craziest Easter egg that was ever laid. But aside from all the extra textual stuff, the quote got worse. She said, but you just have to somehow think more. You have to use your brain a little more in this tennis world. Like, she cleared her. Because, (laughs) I mean, because the book on Serena and Venus, of course, was that they were pure power, no brain. Mm -hmm. And, wow, I mean, this is master. Like, nobody is doing it like her. When they also had these epic battles on court. Mm. Those were some of the most entertaining matches of that era. No matter how you felt about Miss Hingis. Oh, I was supposed to... You asked me to pick some of my favorite matches. Mm. I breezed through it. The 99 US Open Final. Absolutely adored it. I know it wasn't, you know, as epic as some of the lead-up matches. But just for Serena to be able to show off her variety, the beauty in her game. One of my favorites. And like you said, I am not here for these long, drawn-out, three-hour, three-set, 16-14, third-set tie-break <laughs> matches. One of my absolute favorites and what generated one of the greatest moments in TV history was when Serena Williams cleared Maria Sharapova in the London Olympic final, did her dance on court, her crip walk, and then in her interview on Good Morning America said... She won that one game, and she's doing these, like, fearful hands. (laughs) She won that one game. I could see her pumping her fists. I was like, oh, boy. Here she comes. Oh, God. (laughs) This after Serena has cleared her on court repeatedly and would continue to do so. Yeah. Those 04 memories, they're not going away. Uh, But, you know, 2022 Met Gala were besties. And I have one final one. Okay. Do you remember the group press conference at the Rio Olympics where on that podium sat Serena Williams flanked by Venus to her left and then Madison to her right, I believe, and Sloane Stevens was also there. And the reporter asked them a question about blackness, about being black, and was like, this is for the three of you. This is for Sloane, Venus, and Serena. And Venus and Serena start cracking up. So they're bad. like, you don't want to ask Madison? <laughs> that was so awkward. It was really cute to see Serena and Venus like Kiki with that generation, especially after Serena and Sloane supposedly had this huge beef. It was really cute. Uh, but that leads into Serena's, uh, her filmography, her TV moments. You know, she was a star, not just on the tennis court. She was on Law & Order SVU. At one time, she was an MTV star. Now she's a Vogue star. Now she's a Met Gala star. <laughs> right. Now she's another worldly star. 
But in the early 2000s, she was on Bernie Mac. Like, she was really trying the acting thing, Mm -hmm. for real. The MTV Diary, first of all, if you are a millennial or older, MTV MTV Diary was that girl. And Serena's MTV Diary, to have that kind of access now, that's unheard of. I believe this has been pulled from YouTube. If you can find it, please send it to me. But our friend Steph in the U.S. had this on her page for a long time. It was, you know, 01 or 02, I can't remember. Of that time, recent history. She was dating Brett Ratner. We got to see Serena and Jennifer Capriati in the tunnel waiting to go out and play a match against each other, which Serena won. And she was saying, she was trying to get Jennifer to talk. And she's like, no, Jennifer doesn't. I don't think Jennifer likes me very much. Like, this kind of access is crazy. (laughs) She literally broke up with Brett Ratner, like, during the filming of The Diary. It was the break point before (laughs) break point. And, And of course, being Serena. Being Serena, the HBO documentary, this is post-Olympia, right? This is Patrick telling her to stop breastfeeding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean that you have to take it seriously if you really want this. Yeah, the the peak the peak of Serena pop culture stardom is "Sorry" by Beyonce. This is lemonade. This is crazy. This is the album of the decade. This is a video where Beyonce herself has asked you to bounce in like a great house in Louisiana for you to walk down the grand staircase and then bounce and then sit. Beside the other highness in the video. Her highness. <laughs> That's, yeah. Like. Living through that was pretty That wild. video is history. That video should be in museums. <laughs> digital or otherwise. <laughs> Unbeknownst to you, we just took a little break in recording. Because this thing is like, it's, it's getting up there. Yeah. Um, and it may be the most is... fortuitous break we've ever taken while recording. Ever. Uh, and the timing of this episode that we've delayed for months. And I tweeted last week saying, hey, we're recording on Thursday. And we never did. No. Uh, the timing could not have worked out better for us. Serena Williams is pregnant. Yeah. The uh, Met Gala which, is happening right now. <laughs> which we literally just found out on Twitter because we needed to take a break during recording. Because we were yappa, 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 yappa. Right. Uh, We have been done so wrong by timing of episodes before. We we deserve this. Of the 300 episodes that we've recorded, (laughs) we've probably been done wrong by timing in like, what, 25 of them at (laughs) least. But this is amazing news. Like, I sat there and I was like, I'm not going to cry in this episode. I'm really not. But Serena being pregnant, like, this is what she wanted. Olympia's going to have a sip. Take over. (laughs) When Serena said she wanted to transition away from tennis, this is what she had in mind. And it's happening. And she's happy. And I think that is, for Serena fans, the thing that is most gratifying right now is that she gets to be happy in her life outside of tennis, outside of all the trauma that tennis caused her in the last eight years. Like she gets to just be Serena right now. And for now, for now, that means being a businesswoman, a mogul, an icon, and a mother again. Good for her. Good for her. Wow. You know, I cannot stand 
the Met Gala. I have Met Gala on my muted words on Twitter, and somehow it slipped through. I'm so glad it did. Is this an uncouth way to transition into this little point that I wanted to make about how uncouth some Serena fans have been <laughs> with respect to her marriage and her family? Oh, well, maybe, yeah. In service of her chasing this made-up record? Like, that was a lot to live through. Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, att- go after her husband, I don't care. But, like, leave the baby out of it. Serena had a baby. The- she wanted this. She had a beautiful little girl. Well, we go after... It changed her career. It did. We know? go after Alexis all the time, because he acts a fool sometimes. Right. He's and if he does, sort of he should be called out. <laughs> As right. should Serena, right? But when you're talking about that this woman ruined her tennis career... And the chance to win all these titles by getting knocked up. Oh, ew. Like. As Portia Williams said, you're going down the wrong road. Wrong road. (laughs) Because think about where that was. You are here quoting Portia Williams. I know, but she's. She who did not know where the Underground Railroad was. (laughs) Didn't know that there were 365 days in a year. But (laughs) wrong. Think about that. Wrong road. You're talking about a woman's decision to Mm -hmm. have a baby. And so this news makes me very happy because it puts a bow on it. It finalizes things. Serena's career as a tennis player is over. I wish her peace and enjoyment and fulfillment in retirement. Oh, that's so perfect. The finality of this. But (laughs) ironically, what I I kind of wanted to, to finish with, not finish, we're not done, but... Something that I was talking about when we were planning this episode was like, I want to take Serena out of metaphor. Like she's meant so much for so many people and she's become an icon and she's become separated from the reality of what she did. Like this is what happens, right? Like and also icons become the reality of who she is. Right. Icons become something apart from who they are as human beings. They and become I, separate and apart from the WTA tour that they play on. <laughs> that This is where her being bigger than the sport becomes a reality. Right. And so what I wanted to do was like look at her career again and, and enjoy it and go through those highs and lows and see her as a person. And so difficult to do when it's uh, someone of her stature. And we don't know her. We're no, not pretending exactly, to know her. Exactly. Like we do not know. We don't call her at home. But it's like... Yes, you want to take her out of that realm of like the otherworldly, but then you think of the impact, the way that people have designed their games around her, the way that people have tried to like take on that persona and failed. And but pretty much everything like Venus and Serena were an example of something they were harshly criticized for taking time away, uh, having different interests, acting on Law and Order SVU, <laughs> you know. And they never framed it as, like, I'm taking care of my mental health, like Naomi Osaka did. But, like, they created space for tennis players to do a lot of these things. And some of them are still criticized for it, of course. Yeah, but isn't it funny how, I mean, it's not funny, I guess this is how the world works. People come before, and then other people who come after have it easier. Right. And the people who suffered don't get to bear the fruit of those rewards but so many players today are lauded for things that venus and serena were criticized for in their playing days Mm. i mean we recently saw a press conference from 
Amaratakanu, where she's giving one-word answers. She does not want any part of it. And of course, like, the British conservative press, like that wing of tabloids, is very harshly critical of her. But a lot of the discourse is like, yeah. Yeah, she's queen. <laughs> she's protecting her peace, her inner sanctum. Like, good for her. And like, where, where was that in 2004 for Serene and Venus? That didn't exist. It may have existed on, in some small pocket online. But back then, and throughout her career, Serena was seen as ungrateful, unloyal to her sponsors, unprofessional when she acted like that, aggressive, rude, standoffish. All of these signifiers for uh, what it is to be a black woman in the U.S. that means something more sinister than those words. Players have the space to do those things now. As they should. But, like, somebody blazed that path. But what a gift to have decades and so many contours of somebody's personality to, to experience, right? We It feels like we got to see every part of Serena. When you put this on the agenda, talking about taking Serena out of the realm of metaphor, what that struck with me was the thing that I've been grappling with in trying to bring this episode to life the last few months. What I witnessed in the last five years of Serena's career was somebody who just wanted to play tennis. That she had her business life, she had her personal life, and she had her tennis professional life. And when she stepped on the tennis court, that was precious time in training and on court that was toward one goal, that she wanted so desperately. But she could never separate who she was as a global icon, as a cultural monolith from that tennis court, from the discourse surrounding her playing tennis. And the unfortunate part about that is that we, we all saw that all that extra noise inhibited her play on the court. The last yeah. few years of her tennis career, it was impossible for Serena to just be Serena. She couldn't just play tennis. She and was, so, yes, she benefited greatly from her stature in life, economically, professionally outside the game. She's able to do all these other things. All those doors that Chrissy Everett threatened would not open if she didn't pay attention to tennis and buckle down. Those things opened to such a great extent that she could now not play tennis the way she just wanted to play tennis. That is the great irony of it all. And when this is talked about, it's often framed as, well, she's such a burden to tennis. Like, oh, we have to deal with all that it is to be Serena mm. and cover her in tennis again. We have to deal with all the locals coming in to talk about <laughs> Serena while we're trying to just, as the tennis faithfuls, watch Serena. But we never really pay attention to or give any credence to how terrible that must have been for her. The one thing that she's known all her life, she can no longer just do it. Nike. <laughs> and Serena is one to drop a slogan into a <laughs> right? speech. That was good. Another of her legacies, I don't know if you've noticed this, listeners, but every now and then a video pops up on Twitter or on Instagram, and it's one of the Serena girlies, one of the fans, showing you their tennis game. And all these people 
have modeled their <laughs> games, their amateur games, their leisure games, in the style of Serena Jamaica Williams. Yes. And they why not? They are hitting, really? hitting a winner, and they're fist-pumping like Serena. <laughs> they're commanding like Serena. They are living their best Serena life on court. When they're returning serve, they're rocking back and forth and shuffling their feet exactly like <laughs> Serena, exactly like I've done. They have <laughs> practiced that fist bump in the mirror repeatedly. <laughs> the business bun. You cannot remember Serena's playing days without considering the business bun. Mm-hmm. Just, oh, oh, she's taking it. And in the same breath, you cannot remember Serena's career without remembering Crybaby Rena. And one final thing, you're not going to like this. What? Because I'm like telling a story about you. Oh, great. You last week participated in like a, what do you call it? Oh, I like this story. Oh, you do? So this was like a work. Oh, so you're just going to take it over? A big work event. Like the whole company was there. You had a three-day conference kind of thing. Right. I mean, everybody's working remotely. This is the one time a year where everybody gets together, blah, blah, blah. It's like 70 people. Yeah. And there was a trivia event, mm-hmm. and I'll let you tell this part of the story. So I don't like playing games anymore because I don't like the competitive side of myself. You don't like losing. You don't no, like how you become no. when you lose. I don't like how I become when I compete at all. So I, I sat there and ate my That's food. growth. I feel like for right. years it would have been just the losing part. <laughs> no. So we had trivia, like, I contribute when I know the answer, but I'm not going to fight with you. Like... I'm not going to fight with the team if you all think you're right. That's fine. I'm, I'm here. I don't need to win. There was a question. And then the question was, who has won the most Grand Slams in tennis history? So I ran up to my friend who was doing the, the trivia. And I was like, now, can I ask you, like, do you mean open era? Do you mean forever? And they're like, what the hell does that forever? mean? Forever? What does that mean? And I'm like, is it Serena? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And she's like, would you like to take the mic and explain? And so I did. So anyway, we my team won trivia. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, this one, he got this. It was a birthday gift, a Christmas gift? I bought it myself. You bought it yourself? Yes. Okay. So you bought this for yourself last year sometime. Never worn it. Never worn it. The very next day, on day three of this conference, you show up to work. And I guarantee you, you have never previously and never will again wear a hoodie to a work event. <laughs> <laughs> but you showed up in your Serena goat hoodie. I did. And somebody came up to me and was like, what the fuck are you wearing? And I'm like, it's a Serena Williams hoodie that says GOAT, greatest of all time. They're like, yeah, I know. Is it a flex? I'm like, because I won trivia? No. But also, yes. Finally, we've made it to the end of the episode and the final segment. The fits, as you kids call it, the fits. I have here outfits. Does that mean I'm old? Yes. <laughs> Cameroon! <laughs> o2 French Open. Green and yellow. Cameroon fit. It kicked off the Serena Slam. It is iconic. It, nothing is nothing is touching this kid. You know what? Try to touch that kit. The cat suit at the US Open. Shortly thereafter. You look back at those pictures and Serena is snatched in that outfit. <laughs> I mean, the discourse about Serena's body when she came out in that thing, like, I mean, she looked unbelievable. Just say you're jealous. <laughs> it wasn't all positive. No, the, I, the conversation I, well, at yes. the time. People you know? are mean spirited out of jealousy right. all the time. 
it was bold. It was extremely bold to wear that. Then we had the jean skirts and the high boots combo at the 04 uh, US Open. We had another catsuit at 2018 French Open, which uh, was supposedly banned. It was supposedly banned in the future. That was her first slam back from having Olympia. (laughs) Yes. And she gave what needed to be given. And we had literally the same discourse we had in 2003 or two, whenever the first catsuit was. But what, what we saw, especially at the end of Serena's career, was that her kit reveal moments, when she walked onto center court, because let's be real, when was the last time Serena did not play on a center court? Right. When she walked onto center court to play her first round match at a Grand Slam, and she always had a cover-up, beat a jacket, a shawl, uh, what do you call it, a caftan? A cape, even. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You knew there was something underneath it. And the reveal of that was prime time. Maybe that's just a gay thing. No, it, I mean, this is iconic stuff. Like, people tuned in for the reveal of her kit. The Flojo look at the 2021 Australian Open. Love that one. The, the Wakanda catsuit. That was the 2019 French Open. The Puma, I mean, the Puma Wimbledon looks are unrivaled absolutely gorgeous but we're with going the, we're going the, back a ways with the orange trim yes. the piping mm. the puma looks were so good yeah that australian open with the white and then the little orange belt the 2015 australian open kit that was a favorite of a lot of folks oh with all the straps yeah with like the day glow and... yeah one of my absolute favorites the 2013 australian open purple kit yes like that one was incredible People always say, what's a slam winning kit that didn't win a slam? That is the one for me. Yeah, that should have won a slam. She lost to Sloan that year, 20. I guess we should mention that I made you. Well, well you know, it's a, a minor thing in the past 20, <laughs> 25 years. The point is, <laughs> we could go on and on, but nobody is doing it like Sarita. Like, I still love tennis. I still have my faves. I still watch it and enjoy it without that partisanship but nobody is doing it like serena there's no replacement there may be somebody who as there shouldn't be right somebody needs to come and give something different and Mm -hmm. i'm gonna get myself in trouble here but what i'm looking for with descendants (laughs) is to bring something new and original to the table and at this point like we we have no idea who it's gonna be right but they're in the history of the sport there have been very few stars like Serena mm-hmm. and Venus Williams. It looked like it could have been Naomi at a at a point, and maybe it could, it, could maybe still, it still be. can be. Like, but those maybe Chrissy needs to write another letter. <laughs> wow, uh, but in history, it has been Chrissy Everett. It has been Billie Jean King. It has been Roger Federer. Like, there are very few stars, especially in women's tennis. I think who have ascended to that level of fame, and I think versus Serena, it's only Billie Jean King. Like, that's it. It's the only one in the same universe. And there are a lot of people who could have but didn't for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And one of those could have been Venus. Right. If not for Serena. Yeah. <laughs> that is an incredible part of the story, right? All right. I think we've reached the end. Uh, There's no perfect way to wrap this episode no. up. It's uh, It's been such a privilege to, to be a fan and to cover Serena so much on this show. We beat on Boats Against the Current, you know, Great Gatsby. You should read it. 
we continue on without Serena in tennis, and that's okay. Life goes on. Congrats to Serena Jamaica Williams on your career, on your announcement of your second child on the way. Thank you for your career, all that you gave us fans and fans of tennis. Your contributions will never be fully measurable. And that's something that we can try to achieve, but it is what it is. Such is the nature of the greatness. Serena's goat. Goodbye. (laughs) My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This is The Body Serve. Find everything Body Serve related at linktree.com slash The Body Serve. If you've enjoyed the show, hold up. We need to also celebrate here as well. Yeah. I feel like it's been a footnote. This is 300. 300. This is nine plus years of a lot of work. Yeah. It's, I haven't celebrated it yet because we haven't, you know. It hasn't been released. It hasn't been edited. A daunting process (laughs) (laughs) coming up. But um, thank you, everyone who's listened at any point over these past uh, eight years. Um, Yeah, this has been a treat and we are still going. If you've enjoyed the show, hit us up with a review. I think this this is a good time to ask Mm -hmm. for one, right? (laughs) Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.